God asks us to do something that you don't have, remember that He is the one who always supplies. I always keep this, these statements in my, in my mind. When God calls, He enables. Let's turn our Bibles to Ezra chapter 3. Ezra chapter 3. And we're going to be reading just one verse. And you can just follow along with me as I read verse 8. Ezra chapter 3. Verse 8. The Word of God says, Now in the second year of their coming unto the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month began Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedak, and the remnant of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all they that were come out of captivity unto Jerusalem, and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to set forward the work of the house of the Lord. You may be seated. Now the question for us tonight, who is Zerubbabel? Maybe you know him as you go uh, through the Bible and read the scriptures. Um, he appears in the Bible 21 times in the twenty. Uh, 20 verses in the scripture. So he's in First Chronicles. He also appears in the book of Ezra, Nehemiah, also in the book of Haggai and Zechariah. And most of it was mentioned in the book of Haggai, but we will be dealing for the most part in the book of Ezra, and some of which we will be also dealing with the book of Haggai and Zechariah as we deal with the life of the amazing life of Zerubbabel. Now, who is Zerubbabel? Now, Zerubbabel is Je- uh, Jeconiah's grandson, also known as King Jehoiachin. If you, if you read the, you know, we we are, we are learning about the kings of of uh, Israel and also Judah uh, in our Sunday school, but he, uh, King Je- Jehoiachin is the second to the last king who reigned in Judah. Now, the last one would be King Zedekiah. And the name Zerubbabel is of the Babylonian origin, meaning Zerub, it means seed or offspring, and Babel, of course, what does that mean? Because from, from Babylon, right? From the, from the word Babylon. So if you put them together, seed of Babylon or offspring of Babylon. So that gives us an idea that he may be, have been, uh, we don't have any record whatsoever, but he may have been born in Babylon. Now, before we uh, get into uh, the life of Zerubbabel, there are certain things we need to understand. First is, the Bible says that in Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 9, King Jehoiachin, or Jeconiah, the Bible says that did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. And because of this, God allowed King Nebuchadnezzar to bring him to Babylon during the second deportation in 597 BC. So there's three major deportation happened in, 
in Jerusalem, specifically in the nation of Southern Kingdom. So the first one in 609 BC, that's when Daniel, his friends, right, they were deported also and they went to Babylon. And also the second deportation, that is when King Jehoiachin was taken to, to Babylon together with Ezekiel and other um, prominent names as well. So also God pronounced a curse to Jeconiah and his seed in Jeremiah chapter 22. If you read that in verse 30, I will not read the whole uh, passage, but uh, the Bible says, No man of his seed shall prosper sitting upon the throne of David and ruling anymore in Judah. Now, so, we, so when you read the portion of Matthew chapter 1, verse 11 and 16, the, the name Jeconiah was there, is there. His descendants from Jeconiah, uh, after Jeconiah, his descendants never had the opportunity to sit on the throne of David and to be called king. And the, names are men- and the names that are mentioned in Matthew would have been king had they not disobeyed God and pursued idolatry. But after the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., Judah never reigned their independence until 1948, of course. And the names... Uh, and this, this made Zerubbabel one of the would-be kings would-be kings of Judah. And you can really read of this, and you can really read of this, is what a tragedy, what a, what a life, and what a you know, testimony would that be to be remembered as kind of not sitting on the throne of David and become a would-be king. But you know, that didn't stop Zerubbabel from following the Lord. Even though that his past kind of messed up because of sin and the idolatries of his, gra- of his father and grandfather, we know that Zerubbabel followed the Lord. And as we learned about the, Zerubbabel's life, we will learn about three different character qualities in his life as he follows God. But first, let's begin in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for tonight. We ask, dear Lord, that you would speak into our hearts. Father, I pray that you would uh, hear us and even, Lord, help us to listen to your word. Lord, that we would decide even to continue to follow you and even, Lord, to grow our relationship with you. Lord, speak into our hearts. May your name be glorified in our midst, in Christ's name, amen. Now, the first here that we can find, the first character quality is the willingness to follow God's will. So it's also, this is one thing that we should uh, understand in the life of Zerubbabel. We must have willingness to follow God's will. And for that, let's turn to Ezra chapter 2, Ezra chapter 2. Uh, I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. You can just follow along with me as I read Ezra 
chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. The Word of God says, Now these are the children of the, uh, of the province that went up out of the captivity of those which had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away unto Babylon, and came again unto Jerusalem and Judah, everyone unto his city, which came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Zeriah, Realiah, Mordecai, Belshan, Mezpar, Bigvei, Rehum, Beena, and the number of men of the people of Israel. Now, to, to give you a little bit of background story here, is that if you read Chronicles and also in Ezra, and especially in chapter 1, the very beginning of that, that King Cyrus made a decree that the remnant and the children of Israel can now return in Jerusalem. And this was a great opportunity and a great blessing to them because God promised that after 70 years of exile, a remnant shall return. And this is a great you know, manifestation of God's faithfulness in His Word. He will never turn down His Word, or he will, and He will always do what He promised. And so here, the opportunity is now in front of them. And they were able, even Cyrus decreed that he will fund the construction of the temple. But we have to understand, after living in Babylon for 70 years, most Jews, probably including Zerubbabel, considered Babylon their home. And many were not thrilled about returning to their homeland, which they have never known. Because a lot of these Jews never had the opportunity. They, they probably been born in Babylon and never even had the opportunity to see Jerusalem, even Judah. Following Jeremiah's advice in chapter 29, in verses 4 to 7, the, ex- the exiled Jews built houses, they uh, planted gardens, they married, and of course raised families there. And many Jews have done well in business and undoubtedly had children and grandchildren. So imagine, it's like, you know, telling you have to live whatever you're doing here and go back to, for them, a foreign land because they have never known Jerusalem. And so Zerubbabel and the children of Israel could have just stayed in their comfortable lives. And probably many Jews thought, why move to foreign, for them because that is foreign now, foreign land devastated years ago, which didn't even have a city wall. Nevertheless, the Bible says in Ezra chapter 2 verse 1, that they came to Babylon. Uh, they came to Jerusalem from Babylon. Zerubbabel had been commissioned by God to rebuild the temple of Jerusalem under his leadership, of course. And since not all are thrilled to go back, it's, there's only nearly 50,000 people with, uh, came with him and returned to Jerusalem. After they arrived, he was appointed as governor 
to oversee the temple construction. And this was not an easy task. Um, if you're just reading the book of Zechariah, the book of Haggai as well, the, the, the temple construction and even the book of Ezra is never, was never an easy task since the temple was no ordinary building for the Jews. In the time of Solomon, God's glory came down and dwelt among the people. The temple was a visible sign of God's presence and that they were the chosen people of God. And so Zerubbabel must have felt overwhelmed with a task. That, and, and to make things worse, there were oppositions around, around them who didn't want the temple to be done. And nonetheless... The Bible says that Jerubbabel chose to put his trust in God. Like Abraham, who uh, traveled from Ur of Chaldees and went to a foreign land that he never, uh, he never, see, he never seen. But instead, he trusted God, knowing that God is there. He was willing to follow God's will. Like the disciples of Christ in the Gospels were willing to forsake all to follow God's will. Zerubbabel was willing to leave the comforts behind in Babylon to follow God's will in his life. Now remember, this is not a direct command of God built in the temple if you, if you try to look into it, but it is the willingness of the people to construct that temple because they have the opportunity right there in front of them and they did grab it. So the first thing that we can see in the life of Zerubbabel that we that he is willing to follow God's will. And that's also a challenge for us. We must have a willingness to follow God's will in our lives. There are lots of written God's will in the book in God's book but there are also things that God will reveal to you what His will for your life. And it's for you to decide and be willing to follow the will of God in your life. The second, let's turn to chapter 3, still in the book of Ezra. Chapter 3, just, uh, you know, one page or not even maybe. Now, remember, his mission, his mission was to rebuild the temple, Correct? That's his mission. You would have think that he would begin his work by laying the foundation of the building, erecting the walls, and so on and so forth. Right? That would be logical. That would be the, very, uh, the most logical approach to rebuilding the temple. Correct? Because uh, no man built the temple from roof to, to the ground. I'm not a builder, but of course, if you ask the builders, where Dave we have here, a builder, he knows that you start from ground to up, right? That would be the most logical, from ground to up. No wasting time, right? No wasting time. Let's go and build the house of the Lord. However, we read in verses 1 and 2, chapter 3, 1 and 2, and when the seventh month was come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man 
to Jerusalem. Then stood up Joshua, the son of Josadak, and his brethren, and the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, and his brethren, and builded the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Now, it's amazing how you would see, you're expecting now, as you probably read, now it's the time to build the temple. But look at what we have seen here in chapter 3. And in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, the altar was built, that's the first thing, and sacrifice were reinstated. And so we can see in the life of Zerubbabel that he put God at the center of his life and at the center of the life of the people of God. This is very, very important because even in our lives, if God is not the center of our lives, you know what will happen. And Zerubbabel here, instead of starting the foundation of the temple, Zerubbabel has his priorities right. He started at the very core of what temple is all about. Well, temple, a building, is just a, a building, right? But the main life and core of why the temple exists is the altar and sacrifices. Now, the Bible says that he had others build the altar of God of Israel and reinstated the sacrifices that God had previously prescribed through Moses. And the Bible, even the Bible says... As it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. The altar and sacrifice were central, very central in the temple's life back then. Just as the cross and our salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, God had provided for them a temporary way so that they can be right with God and if, uh, only if they do it by faith. And as they continued in altar sacrifices... They were looking forward for the coming of the promised Messiah, and they do it by faith. And many people think that they were uh, the way to get saved in the Old Testament was through their sacrifices, through those works. But I say unto you that that's not what the Bible says. The sacrifices was a picture of the perfect sacrifice to come that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. They had to do it over and over again because it was temporary. But when Jesus Christ came and died on the cross, the sacrifice was over. Christ did it once and for all. Now you see, the altar was always the center to temple worship. In today's church, the cross in the salvation it offers, use uh, uh, in the salvation it offers, offers to us are central to our salvation uh, or our salvation and relationship with God. And if you're a Christian, this truth needs to be in the center of our lives. Now, the problem because it's like if we know that we are saved, we forget that already. We don't really think of that most of the time or even every single day of our lives. You know, if we, if, if we understand Christ's cross... His sacrificial death, burial, resurrection, and His forgiveness of our sins, then we, have, then we are Christians really that is 
it close in relationship with what in Jesus Christ with what he did on the cross of, of Calvary. That's the reason why we are, we are here. That's the reason why we gather. And that's the reason why we have the opportunity to, to worship him because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Now, I like the Apostle Paul because let's turn to the right and let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, I know mo- um, there are some in the Corinthian church that are not saved, but of course, this message is for, uh, is for the saved during, uh, during that time. In verses 1 and fo- to 4, the Bible says, Moreover, brethren, declare unto you the gospel which I preach unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. Did you get that? It is... It is the gospel that, that the gospel had made them to salvation, but it is the same message that the Apostle Paul declared to them because, of their, because they are saved now. You see, it's the same as, um, just, I will just continue in verse 2, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I deliver unto you, First of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, in that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the gospel there. And here the Apostle Paul declared the same gospel to the unsaved, to the saved of Corinthian believers. He understands that this message really is important in the lives of of the believers. You see, Zerubbabel started with from the inside out, as the same as what happened for us inside out, from the very core of what temple is all about. In our service, this should be the very same thing. Christ should be the reason why we serve. We give, well, we give our lives to, ser- to service because of who Jesus Christ is and what He has done for us. And he should be the center of our lives. Zerubbabel did. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, the Bible says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. You know, when we give, we give our tithes. We do that because we are commanded to do that. But, you know, when we, God serve us, uh, God asks us to serve and to give our lives, you know, you see how the verse started? I beseech you. And you see, it's your decision. It needs to be willing. It needs to be your decision to put God at the very center of your life. So it is important that we, before we serve, we have the right heart and motive. It is easy in the lives of Christians to be busy in the kingdom, but actually forget the king of the kingdom. And not only he, he, he reinstated the altar worship, but also look with me in, let's go back to, to 
Ezra chapter 3. I'll be reading verses 4 and 5, and you can just follow along with me. Verse 4, they kept also the feasts of tabernacles as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the custom as the duty of every day required. And afterward offered the continual burnt offering, both of the new moons and of all the set feasts of the Lord that were consecrated, and of everyone that willingly offered a free will offering unto the Lord. Now feasts are, were vital in Israel's worship of God. And probably you're thinking of what all the, these feasts all about. Well, each feast foretold and illustrated the major redemptive work of Jesus Christ. God knew the people of God tend to forget, as, so we, as we are, right? We tend to forget. And so these feasts are needed to remind the children of Israel to take time and meditate upon the hope of the coming Messiah. Feasts are God's command to observe and ponder. And that's why Zerubbabel also reinstated these feasts as an act of obedience to the command of God. Now you see here, now we're kind of looking, you see the life of Zerubbabel, he is willing to go out from where he was used to be, from, you know, the comforts of uh, his, his home and willingly obey the will of God. Now, he, we see his life as well that he put God as the center by reinstating first the altar worship and the feasts of God. And here in the third, we see also in his life that he is committed, really committed to follow God. And it's also the same for us. We must have a commitment to follow God. And for that, let's read verses 6 to 8. You can just follow along with me, verses 6 to 8. From the first day of the seventh month begun they to offer burnt offerings unto the Lord. And look, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. They gave money also unto the masons and to the carpenters and meat and drink and oil unto them of Sidon and to them of Tyre to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea of Joppa according to the grant that they had of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, we, we have already read uh, verse 8, but just on the very end, to set forward the work of the house of the Lord. To set forward the, house, uh, the work of the house of the Lord. After the altar sacrifice and feast were reinstated, it was time for the temple to rebuild. Zerubbabel led the people and began to work on the foundation of the temple itself. If you think of it, now if you really kind of you know, ponder upon what they did, the people were obedient to what God had commanded them, and that is to observe the altar sacrifices and the feasts. Yes? 
That's what God commanded to them according to the law of Moses, the man of God. But these things had little, had little to do with their commitment to God. Why? Because, yes, they, they must do it because that's the command of God. And since they did what God required of them, they could have just gone their way, right? And started establishing their lives and their careers, just bring back their lifestyle with them there from Babylon to Jerusalem. They can just do the same thing that what they did in, in Babylon. Same lifestyle when they were in Babylon. Makes sense, right? And maybe some people did that. I'm not sure. I can't find anything. But, uh, but those who came to work on building the foundation of the temple were folks who were committed and willing to do more than just basics. You know, the basics are just the, uh, the, oh, those, you know, altar sacrifices. You know, you come and you observe the feast. But the rebuilding of the temple is a manifestation of people who are committed and willing to do than more than just the basics. Since their rebuilding project was not at the direct command of the Lord, it demonstrated an individual's love for God. We love the Lord. We want to see the building or the temple of God be erected again. That's in their hearts. And that's why you can see in chapter 2, Verses 68 to 69. And I like how the people work together. As also with, in the book of Nehemiah, the people, you know, really have one mind to work. And in verse 68, it says, And some of the chief of the fathers, when they came to the house of the Lord, which is at Jerusalem, look at this, offered freely for the house of God to set it up, in his place. In verse 69, they gave after their ability unto the treasure of the work three score and one thousand drums of gold and five thousand pounds of silver and one hundred priests' garments. Um, you know, we don't have the <clears throat> time to recalculate uh, that. I should have, but uh, okay, so. But you see, my point here is this. In verse 69, they gave after their ability unto the treasure of the work. Now, you know, there's a very great point there in verse 69. God does not ask for something what we don't have. God asked Moses, you remember what God asked, uh, who, uh, what is the question of God? What was the question of God and uh, Moses? Okay, what's, what's in thine hand? What is that in thine hand? Right? So Moses gave it. But if, you know, if God asks us to do something that you don't have, remember that he is the one who always supplies. I always keep this, these statements in my, in my mind. When God calls... He enables. When God calls, He supplies. That's the very thing that we have to understand. You know, 
when you, when you surrender your life, when a person surrenders his life or her life to full-time service, it's, the, it's a manifestation of commitment. You know, when you decide to join yourself to become a member, it doesn't, God does not command you to, to do because that is not part of your salvation. But when you decide to become a member of the church, it's a manifestation of commitment. When you decide to serve in the service in, in different ministries, when you decide to help out whatsoever that you can see around the church, it's a manifestation of commitment. When you give above and beyond, like sacrifice giving, faith missions, and giving towards our building, it's a manifestation of commitment. Because you love the Lord, you're willing to do it. Someone says, commitment deepens our relationship with God. As I close, let me tell you what, what really happened. Did the construction of the temple finish? Well, we, we know. Um, tell you what happened when the children of Israel uh, decide to be committed to following the Lord. Now they are willing, right? They're, they were committed now to build the temple of God. Well, when the work of, on the foundation began, opposition began. Just like how Satan challenges you when you decide to be committed to him. The Samaritans and the uh, other neighbors became upset with the building development, so they sent a petition, a letter, to stop the project. And sadly, this fueled a growing sense of discouragement within the children of Israel. If you look from the, you know, the book of Haggai, Zechariah, and also and Ezra as well, they really have been discouraged. The initial optimism and, and enthusiasm that was present upon the returning uh, people to Jerusalem was, not, was, was already d- diminished. It was easier to stop the building project than to continue to fight the oppositions. You know, then one day, King Artaxerxes shut down the work and construction ceased for 16 years. This is a sad you know, a moment for the children of Israel. They were so excited to build the temple of God, but it was shut down. And as a result, it led to spiritual complacency and apathy. Many Jews were not looking forward to, to the rebuilding of the temple. And instead, they now built homes for themselves. Planted fields, just what they did, just what they did in Babylon, and started vineyards. Now, you know, if you ask me, are, are these are you know, um, you know, sinful? Well, of course not. But the thing is, you know, they their enthusiasm and their zeal to uh, to build the temple was was really was really diminished, and eventually it was gone. Some began even spend part of the funds that were committed to the construction of the temple. This is not good, right? As A.W. Tozer said, complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. 
When the children of Israel were complacent and began to, to be apathetic in the work of God, in the work of the Lord, you know, God is really discouraged to his people. But of course, he sent Haggai to rebuke his people. And for that, let's turn to Haggai chapter 2, uh, chapter 1, sorry. That's the third to the last book of the Old Testament. Haggai chapter 1. And this is, you know, very sharp a rebuke for the people of, of God because of their grown complacency, complacency and apathy. In verse 4, chapter 1, Haggai chapter 1, verse 4, the Word of God says, you can just follow on with me, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses and this house, talking about the temple, lie waste? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Ye have sown much and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye, you are, ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord, this is the second time of oath, consider your ways. And verse 8, go up to the mountain and bring wood and build a house and I will take pleasure in it. And I will be glorified, saith the Lord. There you can see Zerubbabel and even the people really grow in complacency with, with their love for God. And in, in the house of God lie waste. And you can see that. But of course, we read in verse 12, just in the same verse, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, with all the remnants of the people, obey the house of the Lord, uh, obey the voice of the Lord, their God, and the words of Haggai, the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people did fear before the Lord. So you see, Zerubbabel, Joshua, and all the remnants of the people of God listened to the rebukes of God and obeyed his voice. So I'd like to draw two final conclusion here. I think it is important to note and to understand that when the construction of the temple began, that's when the opposition began. Right? The same is true with our relationship with God. When we decide to willingly follow His will, when we put Him at the center of our lives, when we are be willing to be committed to follow Him, that is when the devil starts his fiery darts of temptations and oppositions. But as we follow God, He wants to do it in His own will and way. And so Zechariah was sent by God also to encourage Zerubbabel to accomplish what he had started. And this is the last one, Zechariah chapter Chapter 4, verse 6. Very familiar passage. If you can read with me that passage, verse 6. Zechariah chapter 4, 
verse 6. Okay, if you're there, let's begin. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember, only by the Spirit of God can anything be accomplished. We make a mistake if we let our lives just to, you know, no matter how beautiful the program, right? No matter how beautiful the building, no matter how skillful the people are, if they are done in the fleshly way, not by the Spirit of God, there's no accomplishment happened there. And so here, in, in the life of Zerubbabel, you see that God encouraged him that he can accomplish what he had started, but not through his power, not through his you know, strength, but by the Spirit of God, the temple will be able to accomplish. And you see, it was accomplished. Now, a lot of people, a lot of the old people during the time of Zerubbabel really cried aloud because it's not like Solomon's temple. And really, it's not. It's small. But, but you see, God encouraged him that do not despise the, despise the small things. Even the Zerubbabel's temple, what Solomon never happened to the Solomon's temple was really happened in the temple of Zerubbabel because it lasted for more than 500 years, not Solomon's temple, but Zerubbabel's temple did. And also the very symbolic and, you know, things, thing, thing is that wonderful is that it's the Lord Jesus Christ who walked in that temple, and that is Zerubbabel's temple, not Solomon's temple, even though it's so grand, grand and beautiful, right? And so don't dis, uh, we should not despise the small things. And another thing, the last take note of Zerubbabel's life is that even though he never had the opportunity to sit on the throne, we already talked about this, Haggai ends his book with an amazing hope about Zerubbabel. God called him first, my servant. A foreshadowing of the Messiah who is perfect servant of all. Number two, God made him a signet ring. A signet ring represents a, a king's royal authority. And by making Zerubbabel God's signet, this implies that God reversed the curse and judgment on his grandfather, Jeconiah. The third one, God chose him which signifies that God renewed his promise that the Davidic line would not die out, but would one day give birth to Israel's Messiah. You know, as we learn from the life of Zerubbabel, the question would be, would we be willing, would we be willing to follow God's will, no matter the cost? Would we, or would you decide tonight to put God as the center of your life, And would you be committed to following him despite opposition? Thank you for watching the message today. We invite you to join us again every Sunday and Wednesday for more inspiring messages from God's Word.